Straight Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I'm one of your co-hosts, Rick Snyder. I'm the author of Decisive Intuition and the CEO of Invisible Edge. And this is our not-for-profit video podcast that's almost a year old in its infancy here. Uh, We started at the very beginning of COVID, and that's why we started this, is we were not satisfied by the conversations that were happening around the world in terms of human, digital, and social transformation. So Af and I were saying, hey, why don't we do something about that and create a platform for the conversations we all need to be having and to influence the influencers? And so without further ado, here is my co-pilot in crime, Af Maholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Uh, Welcome, everyone. And what a fantastic show today. It's a bit of a dream come true show for us, both Rick and I, and uh, nostalgic in many ways because uh, the gentleman who's on the call today uh, created something that was a big part of my younger life. And I spent hours and hours gaming on uh, my Atari. And I remember my father, who was alive then, uh, was absolutely lambasting me. He was like, what is wrong with you, child? You should be going and reading books. You should be going to the library because we had libraries those days and encyclopedias. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, you just don't understand. And uh, many, many years later now, of course, we have the founder on our show. So loads of questions uh, for Nolan, but I'm going to let Rick do the intros and we'll get right on with it. So as I say, let's crack on. And I've got a fanboy for, I got a fanboy out a little bit for a second also. As a child from the 80s, part of my whole decade was about Atari and Chuck E. Cheese. That's where you had birthday parties as a kid in the 80s. And so that's what we did. Um, And so we actually have the founder of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese and 20 other business ventures throughout the decades. Um, And one of Newsweek's 50 men who changed America. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Straight Talk Live, Nolan Bushnell. Nolan, welcome. Good to be here. So great to have you here. And one of the things that just doing some history and background on you, just really appreciating how you've been on the leading edge in so many different ways of technology uh, for literally decades. And that takes a lot. I mean, it it could be one thing to have one shot at it. It takes a whole other level of, uh, you know, gumption and motivation to keep going and to keep being curious and exploring. So let's start there. What is it about you when you when you reflect back at your life? that is that fuel source that has you continue, even in well into your 70s, uh, still doing that thing of invention and entrepreneurialism? You know, I think curiosity is the primary driver mm. um, for almost everything. And I'm not sure whether it's innate or whether you can curate it or what, what it is, but I, I've just kind of always had it. You know, I've always felt that there was more to learn and more to understand. And I'd find myself going down rabbit holes all the time on various things just because somebody asked me a question that tweaks my interest. Mm-hmm. And and I'm also a large consumer of science fiction. And mm-hmm. I believe that science fiction has an interesting place in the world mm-hmm. in that the science fiction author can invent things long before they can actually be invented. (laughs) Right. And so in some ways, science fiction is the grist for the future, the probable possible future, the impossible future, the 
you know, like, you know, science fiction has been having the Ansible for a long time. And yes, there is quantum entanglement, but nobody thinks you can actually build one. <laughs> <laughs> and time travel, you know, those, those are the ones that keep messing around with it, you know, the multiverse and all that. But um, I think that if you are a curious person and you read science fiction, you can't help but being a little bit on the, the leading edge. Mm -hmm. can, can, I, can we stay with curiosity just for a moment? Because um, you talk a lot about, and I'll let you articulate this, some of us being dead. So you talk about the fact that, <laughs> that our brain, some of us are just not curious enough. They have, we haven't woken up to some extent. And there are others who are motivated and pumped and enthusiastic and curious, wanting to learn. Tell us a little bit about, you know, you've got such an incredible history. So many things that you've done, you've succeeded. Um, you may have failed many times. You may regret certain decisions. You may be really delighted with certain decisions. Uh, talk us through, and we're, we're just trying to encapsulate many, many years of just incredible journeys that you've been on. But tell us a little bit about what it used to be like back in the 70s, because I, I wasn't, I was born in 78. So I missed the action. I'm six years out. You missed but, the action. <laughs> I missed the action. It was one hell of a decade, Av. 72 <laughs> onwards. Um, but what was it like then in terms of um, curiosity and how we thought about things? And what is it now? Uh, what is it like now um, in, in this age? Give us some perspective. There's a couple of huge huge differences um in the early days of the internet actually in the early days of cd-roms bill gates talked about information at your fingertips hmm. and we truly have that now and we didn't have it in the 70s mm -hmm. you know your go-to was not wikipedia it was encyclopedia Britannica. And it was already 10, 20 years out of date whenever you had it, if you, if you had a recent one. And, and so your ability to satisfy curiosity was always damaged to a certain extent, uh, much more than, than it is now. But when you talk about that, I, I gave a speech that became controversial a little bit and in which I said, the most important thing you can do in, in business is don't hire dead people. <laughs> and, and somehow that got picked up and maybe it's one of those turns of phrases, but it's actually really, really true that mm. there are a lot of people that are dead. They just don't know it yet. Mm, and the last thing you want to do is pay them every Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Just describe, describe dead for a moment just for the audience because yeah. what, what do you mean? People who are basically recipe players. They don't think out of the box. They mm. don't have a new idea. They are constantly living a deterministic life of no, no innovation, no creativity, no out-of-the-box thinking. They're basically just sort of fumbling along. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that is as close to dead as you can be while you're still animated. But do you think in a company that it's realistic to think that everyone's going to be switched on in that entrepreneurial way? Or do you think that's there are going to be other people that balance that out, that just kind of 
phone it in, do the job, and they're not really looking at that outside the box possibility. I, I, I think there probably are, but I think you, and, and you're going to end it. And, and quite can, candidly, mm -hmm. there are times that people are switched on and then certain other times they, they get switched off a little bit. So we're not a homogeneous individual. Nobody's a mm -hmm. homogeneous really. Right. So, but what you really need to do is get people that are passionate about mm -hmm. life and about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you can hire for a for for education level, you can hire for, you know, business experience. But when it all comes down to passion is what gets the job done mm -hmm. and solves the problems. And and you know, people that care. There's a lot of people that don't care about anything. And that's another characteristic of deadness. Um, you know, if you don't care, then, you know, you just put life one step in front of the other. Like during this COVID thing, mm -hmm. it would be very, very easy. And, and I found myself slipping into, into kind of laziness in some aspects, you know, like the you, the, it turns into Groundhog Day. Every day kind of sort of looks the same. And I come out into my lab and I tinker around and then I listen to a book and then I watch a movie and, you know, I mean, come on, <laughs> that's not passionate. <laughs> but at the same time, I've curated a couple of new businesses during this time. And, and that's kind of been fun and gone down a couple of weird rabbit holes. But uh, I, I guess... I guess the thing that we want to do is live an active, happy life. Be happy. Mm -hmm. Be enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you, do you see, because uh, you've traveled the world and you just talked about, before we came on the call, you talked about your six months with your family in, in the UK, in London. Do you see um, environmental factors? More, what I mean by that is culture and the, the locality, uh, the region you're based in has a, a factor to play here. And I give the, just because, I know it's a trite example, but I give the example of Silly Valley, Silicon Valley, as being sort of this hub for many, many years. And you, of course, you're, you, you hang around there too and have been there for many years. Uh, tell me a bit about what you think has been the sort of driving force uh, to not be dead, to be that curious individual doing things, constantly motivated, even, even now, um, at this stage of your life, it sounds like you're already uh, involved in things. And during COVID, you you've been involved in new projects. So mm -hmm. you're constantly keeping yourself charged up and it's still going, right? It's like the oh, yeah. still well, going. You know, I think sometimes I feel like I'm the fish that can't discover water. <laughs> I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm this guy that, that I go down a rabbit hole, I get thinking about things, and all of a sudden I said, boy, the only way I can get this into the world is to start a business. You know, it's it's kind of a, a blessing and a curse at the same time. Like I don't I don't have the option of just saying, gee, this is an interesting idea. I, I kind of have to do something about it. Mm. You know, I, I, I feel like uh, just having an idea, you don't own it until you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think the people around you and the environment around you has a big role to play? Massive. Uh, yeah. Massive amount. I mean, the 
and and it has a lot to do with with happiness too. I mean, you go to some of the Asian countries where people are they've got nothing and yet they seem pretty damn happy. Mm-hmm. And, I, and you know, that's kind of the the win and it really gives you a understanding of the disconnect mm-hmm. between wealth and and happiness. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm sure if you if you're starving and cold, that's not very fun. And so you got to have some minimum level. But once that's that minimum level's there, you know, do uh, do people who have Netflix are they fundamentally more happy than people that don't? Not sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, you really speak to you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Basically, if if I have my basic needs covered, then I then my needs of belonging and feeling part of a group or a community, and then that search for meaning and purpose. Right. And so it sounds like you've really recognized that in your own journey, and that keeps you going. And then when you see people who are alive or dead, how much are they on their journey of that hierarchy as well? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's one of one of the one of the. In fact, next week we have a speaker who you actually might know, a, a chap called Mike, Mark Stallman, who was, um, yeah. Who's, yeah, who was uh, um, the guy who spotted AOL and IPO'd AOL and then Sun Microsystems, and he's coming on the show next week. And him and his team and some stuff that I do with them talk about this concept of flesh robots. And these days we, we're just flesh robots, you know, get, like in the UK or in, in, the, in the US, we get onto the subway nine or seven in the morning, whatever it is, we come back at six, we do it day in, day out, that groundhog mentality. And I think the COVID situation has, has been an awakening of sorts for many of us. Um, and maybe we've, we should feel positive about it because I guess I know you're very bullish on the future of technology. And I've seen you talk about the 2050 scenarios, right? A new world, you're much older, but you, you're living in a greener environment without traffic. You've got your robo-taxi. Um, you see that as a positive thing. A lot of people don't, um, which brings me to one, one sort of controversial question, which has come up loads of times, which is about your Atari days and this concept of new technology and gaming. Um, and parents are kind of pissed with it and the users of the games are, are loving it. And I want to bring, I want to get your perspective on 21st century gaming, Minecraft, uh, Roblox, this new kind of gaming. I mean, the graphics and Roblox are really basic, right? But the, but the psychological impact, the addiction to it is just intense. What is your understanding of this stuff? As, as a founder of, of one of the first gaming well, devices. I think that I go back, I'll put this a little bit in context. Um, there were countries in the early days that banned coin-operated games. They, you know, and, and I know of no software engineer that's not a gamer, not one. And those countries that banned games early on fell behind in the next wave of when, when all of a sudden they were looking for good, good programmers because they just didn't happen. They, they weren't curated because games sort of provide some of that impetus to understand 
how do you make a game? How do you program a game? Mm -hmm. and, and it's programming. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the UK, there was a thing called the BBC Buggy yes. early on, yeah. which created all by itself a whole generation of British great engineers and game designers. Mm -hmm. Just that one thing in the British school system. And, it would, and the BBC Buggy was really a crappy computer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> But, but it was the right thing at the right time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I don't know, did you ever play with that at all? The BBC? I did. Yeah, it was the, uh, it was a cream, it was a keyboard, basically. Yeah. When he's talking about an orange, someone, someone gave me one, donated one to me. Uh, but it was, it, on hindsight, it was crap. I mean, it was more for web processing, I think, than gaming, to be honest. Yeah, well, and then, then, you know, Clive Sinclair, no, yes. Yeah. All that guy. Anyway, okay, we could go down there. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think that the environment and the happiness and and all of that play a part yeah. because what what that e infrastructure does is it provides a very very critical component, and that's optimism. Mm -hmm. mm. You don't start things if you're pessimistic. You got to believe you can succeed. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing that helps you believe you can see can, you can succeed yeah. by working next to somebody that's a dumb, dumbbell who's successful. And you say, if that dumbbell can be successful, I can because I know the guy just barely can put his pants on one leg at a time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and, you know, I was actually lucky in the early days that the first game that the, I licensed my first game to a company that was massively, massively incompetent. And, and it gave me it gave me that real encouragement to, you know, I when I started Atari, we had no money mm -hmm. kind of before venture capital had been invented yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but. Because these bozos, it, I'd licensed it, licensed my first game to it. That I said, "Hey, you know, I can't possibly mess it up more than these guys did." So <laughs> off, off we went. <laughs> and so that infrastructure yeah. of optimism really helps. And there are areas that are optimistic and areas that aren't. Like there were parts of Europe for a while that if you failed, you were over. Mm -hmm. mm. You know, instead of seeing a failure as a learning thing, which is Silicon Valley, I mean, there's there's certain venture capitalists that won't won't invest in a company that in which the founder hasn't had at least one, you know, flame out. Yeah. You know, while we're on the topic of gaming, I want to get your take also on how it's changed over the years in terms of. You know, we've even talked about addictions and people being hooked into the game and the technologies that have changed to get capture people's attention. Yeah. How do you see from the days of Atari to what you're seeing out there today, what do you see are the main differences in that? And is it concerning? I know you have eight children yourself. Are, is that something that's been concerning for you? Has that been like, hey, it's just what happens. It's not really any different. How do you see that in terms of gaming and addiction and what's made of that today? Well, first of all, when we design a game, we're looking to make it addictive. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like the gold standard. Mm -hmm. um, 
as a parent, do you want your kids to have diversity of outcome and that they, I don't want them playing, you know, World of Warcraft for 24-7? Absolutely. Right. <laughs> and I can remember <laughs> my youngest son is just a character and a half. And he was addicted to this one particular game. And I decided I was going to put a, a limit on him. Mm-hmm. And so I put a put a uh, a, a thing a, a limit on him, and of course what he did is he put a key logger on it so that so that he b- immediately found out what my password was and hacked it. Oh <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I thought to myself, okay, he wins. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not worried about it. <laughs> He won that game for sure. He yeah. won that yeah. game for sure. You know, you just wow. got to know when you're licked. <laughs> do you but, um, do the, you do you play? Do you game yourself? I do. Yes, sorta. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not good at real time anymore. You lose right. a few milliseconds of, mm-hmm. of reaction time every year you get older, and so you know, if I were to play um, any first person shooter with my kids i'd be killed and dead and they'd packed up and gone home before i knew i'd been hit you know it just it just doesn't work but i love turn-based games where where you zero out latency and reaction time i still play game uh, i still play go online all the time right. uh, it's still my favorite absolute wonderful game it's uh it talk about addictive mm. you know and and, and the thing that's inter- interesting about Go is it tracks your mental health. Like when I'm happy and, and exercised and everything, I win. And when I'm mm. frustrated and angry about something, I lose. It's mm. really funny. It's a barometer. Mm. It affects your game. Anyway. What about uh, if we zoom out a moment more to entrepreneurialism and... Once again, this is something I'm so fascinated about with you, just given your track record and being on the leading edge for so long. You know, one of the telltale signs of entrepreneurialism is one's tolerance to risk and how one can hold risk. Um, And so I'd love to hear more about that from you. What have you learned? And this is for all the entrepreneurs out there listening and people who are starting their businesses or have been doing it for a while and are needing to iterate again. Um, What what can you say, what what advice can you give around risk and how do you identify when something how do you like balance that intuition you might have plus the data and research that you do tell me how that works for you 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 do a lot of research and i think that a lot of failures come from a lack of prior planning mm. you know and and uh, and when i say deep dive i mean deep deep dive um but there's another factor, um, and my current process is whenever I get a business idea, I write a micro-business plan. It's maybe three or four pages. It has a rough look at uh, what I think it would cost and what the revenue could be. And, you know, it's, it's kind of all my thoughts put down on a piece of paper. And then I put it in a pile. And I call it my marinating pile, where it's to marinate. Mm-hmm. And that came from a, a realization that all all of my successes 
were at the right time at the right place. My failures were wrong time, wrong place. And if you have just one idea, there's only one time now, one place here. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you've got a stack of stuff <clears throat> marinating, all of a sudden the world changes and, and all of a sudden you realize, ah, this is the right time and the right place for that one. Mm-hmm. And so the match between the time and the place and the business concept is more aligned and uh, more likely to be successful. Mm. What, what about uh, it's marinade? I like that word. I mean, we, we love food too. And I think it's marinating ideas is a damn good idea. Um, tell us a little bit about in the, in the same sort of um, uh, sort of uh, pathway. You talked a lot about deep, deep, deep dive research, uh, and I want to I want to throw something another sort of somewhat contra- controversial point. What's happened with entrepreneurship, as you you well as you well know, that um, it's become democratized. Everyone seems to be an entrepreneur these days in some way, shape, or form. That's kind of good. It's a good thing, and of course, failure rates are much higher because you can come up with that one idea to solve that one problem, and you try and fit your product into the market, and then you try for a bit, and maybe you get some seed money, and it fails. And so we know failure rates are relatively high, but it's all good because the funnel is building up, and and, and people are heading towards the right way. But there is a there's a downside, a very sort of sinister side to this, which relates back to state, state of mind. Um, and you talked about when you were gaming and when you're, in, you're not in flow, you do badly at the game. When you're chilled out and relaxed, you're in flow in the right state, you do well at the game. You know, one of the big problems in entrepreneurship today is that uh, younger and younger people are getting into entrepreneurship, not necessarily because they were born into it and they have this big desire to do something amazing, but it's almost like a career to some extent these days. You know, like in the old days, it was like, go work for KPMG, go get a job at this technology company, work for XYZ. Now it's like, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a tech entrepreneur. Um, That has its pros and cons. Uh, Talk us through what where you see that being a glorious outcome versus a sinister outcome um and is what i'm saying making sense to you in the concept in the context of yeah, what you yeah it does there's also this thing out there called entrepreneur <laughs> yeah entrepreneur yeah i've, I've had they, experienced that before yeah and, and they and the entrepreneur thinks they want to be an entrepreneur but they really kind of self-sabotage because they don't want to be tested mm. they, right they really you know oh my you know if if i could just raise this 14 billion dollars so i could build my car plant i'd be a huge success but gosh nobody's gonna put me down for that it's you know silly one one of the things that i believe is lacking in a lot of entrepreneurs right now is they don't have any work experience they, you know, and I probably had 20 jobs by the time I was 19, mm-hmm. you know, all, uh, and, you know, all over the thing from construction work to selling clothes to selling encyclopedias to, you know, I had life experience and a lot. And, you know, kids don't realize that if they've basically grown up, gone to summer camp, you know, gone to college, graduated from college, you know, maybe done a little bit of, you know, been a lifeguard at a pool somewhere that all of a sudden they're just, 
they don't know how the world works. You know, they haven't even flipped a burger at Hamburg at, at McDonald's. They, mm -hmm. And 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 I think that there's a lack of valuing the experience you get from flipping burgers at, at, at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. There's almost a disdain for it, as opposed to it's a cog in in learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I think that um, a lot of the failure rate is just really green as grass people who are who are basically unemployable otherwise you know because they have no experience mm -hmm. yeah. and they think because hey I, I have no experience therefore i can become an entrepreneur no exactly wrong mm. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a salient point it's a very important point because i think um we we, we need to neutralize what's going on right now because there is a big there's a very large contingent a generation of young people not just young people but you know folks who think well actually i'm out of a job uh, look around well companies seem to be raising a lot of money he's successful he's rich social media says everyone's doing well mate i'm going to become an entrepreneur and i hear it all the time and i keep i went into entrepreneurship when i was 35 so i had loads of corporate jobs i failed i succeeded and um, it was a baptism of fire but luckily i had that experience so I was able to make some good calls, more, more, more bad calls sometimes, but, you know, I was able to make some good calls. And I think what you're saying is very, very valuable. Um, do you think in the same, we're staying on the same pathway. Do you think if, if you were to set up Atari today, different world, right? Um, right. How would you, it's a really arbitrary question, but how would you do it today? How would you, in this environment? I think, first of all, Atari in the early days never had enough money. Like we, we were bootstrapping all the way. And, uh, and it, I mean, venture capital really hadn't been invented when Atari started. That mm -hmm. sounds funny to tell, but, but we were at um, almost 30 million in sales before we got any VC at all. And it was only 3 million bucks. You know, it was, it was, a piker compared to what's going on now. So if, if Atari were to start now, I would have capitalized it well, and then we could have done a lot more stuff. And I probably wouldn't have had to sell, sell to Warner either because mm -hmm. um, that was strictly because we couldn't uh, do the 2600 without uh, uh, some infusion of capital because it was a very big project. And yet I knew it was the right project at the right time but it wasn't the right project for Atari without more capital. Mm. And so that would have been a big difference. Um, I think that um, there are two or three things um, that would have been different. Um, I know that I would have replaced the 2600 in uh, three years. Uh, I felt that was the right thing to do. Technically, it was because the cost of memory mm. had just plummeted. The 2600 only had 128 bytes, not kilobytes, bytes of memory, 128. That's nothing. Yeah. And I felt that if we could do a, a line buffer, a, a memory line buffer, the quality of games would just shoot up exponentially. Mm. And I had, the, I had the design all knocked out and everything, and Warner didn't want to do it because they populated it with a bunch of record people. Mm. And, and they thought that, hey, 
we're not in the record player business. We're in the record, you know, we're in this cartridge business and it's a great business. And it was a great business, but if you didn't upgrade the technology pretty soon, anyway, water under the dam. <laughs> there is, there is, I don't know this firsthand, but did apparently you had some interesting people working at Atari in the early days who became big names in the future. Um, tell us a bit about that, and they, hopefully some of them are still around, and don't know if they're still in your peer group, but I noticed there's um, the crew, you know, when you build a crew and you build a friendship with a bunch of people, you carry it on for many, many years. So have you still got some people around who were with you in the Atari days, or even Chuck E. Cheese, because we haven't got to that yet, but even the Atari days, uh, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I, a lot. I mean, you know, everybody knows that Steve Jobs and Wozniak worked for me in in the seventies uh, and yeah. that, uh, and, and I, I kept track with both of them, you know, jobs while he was alive, uh, several others, you know, that have gone on to do some wonderful things. Um, you know, I, I can think of, uh, prob well, my, my engineering team at Atari was rock solid. They were so damn good at everything, you know. They could just crush walnuts with their brains, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and so th that was always enlightening. Uh, they've all made too much money. Like if I did a startup, I couldn't get any of them to come work for me again. <laughs> right. You know, one of the one of the questions that's come through from one of our audience members, Martin Ectors, he's wondering, you know, what was it like to manage Steve Jobs in particular? He's got a reputation, as we all know. Like, what was that like back in the, that day? I never saw the bad Steve Jobs, not once. Hmm. And Jobs had Jobs respected me, and I think that was the whole big difference. If he didn't respect you, he could be just a real shithead. <laughs> you know, um, and I think that um, that he he respected me, and therefore I didn't see it. Um, but subsequent to that, I've I've heard things, and and concurrently, I know that he had a couple of direct report managers that didn't like him much either. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I remember one thing you said to me in our pre-call was that he was just that kind of character where. He didn't really care who you were on the org chart. If he thought the idea was stupid, he was going to say something. He wasn't going to hold back. Exactly. And he just had that kind of, that was just part of his character is I'm just going to blurt out what I think and feel, and I'm not going to censor that. Well, you know, in some ways, I think he felt that he, he was, he want, he needed to be brutally honest, mm -hmm. with everything that he did. Um, I'm not sure that that, was good for him long term, but um, I think that at that point in time, he he really felt that if he had an opinion, his opinion was as important as anybody else's. Mm -hmm. yep. It's that self confidence. Mm -hmm. And then I, I wanted to sort of change gears because we've got loads of questions, um, but I wanted to talk about Chuck E. Cheese um, because you 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 know when you had the Warner um, purchase go on, I think it's the the sense was. 
you were frustrated by the fact that they wanted to do something in a particular, your vision was being compromised in, in essence. And so you went off and you did this Chuck E. Cheese venture, which still had the arcade and the gaming aspect of it. And I love your quote, you know, when you were asked to tell us about Chuck E. Cheese, what is it? You said, well, it's an arcade masquerading as a restaurant because you serve pizza. Right. Um, yeah. Tell us. And I think it was quite, you know, I, I haven't I've never been into one and it wasn't I was in the UK, so I didn't experience it as, as a young man. But I know it was part of Rick's life. It's huge, a huge part of his life. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about because um, it's got glimpses of Disney in it as well. A tad. Tell us a little bit about about how it started. Um, I know you brought in an amazing CEO at that point, Gene. And um, what what were your. What were your takeaways? What were your biggest learnings with Chucky, uh, Chucky e. Cheese? Well, the the epiphany was that I felt that Chuck E. Cheese was in was you know integrating towards the market. That is, um, we were selling coin operated games for fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a piece. That in their lifetime they do thirty to fifty thousand in coin drop. Okay. And so it didn't take rocket science to say, hey, I'm on the wrong side of this equation. But I didn't want to compete with my the people I was selling machines to. And the competition forum was for locations. Mm -hmm. You know, let me put my machines in Joe's bar. Well, yeah. then, you know, if I were to go in and talk to Joe's bar, I would be competing with the guys. So I wanted to, to build my own place. Mm -hmm. Secondarily, I knew that kids two to 12 really loved the video games, but there was no place for them. Mm. You know, they, mm -hmm. you know, bowling alleys were a little bit rough. Bars were not available to them. And that was about it. That was, that was the landscape. So I wanted to have it be a kid's place. I wanted it to be an arcade and uh, pizza was easy to do, hard to screw up, low food cost. And, um, and then I felt, okay, the kids are going to be in the game room. The parents are going to be bored. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put on a show and I'll use, you know, it'll be like the Tiki room, but I'll do it with, you know, with vaudeville stand-up comics. And so Chuck E. Cheese was born. Wow. And apparently you had, you opened up 50 stores in one year. Um, oh Yeah. And um, so what, what's, ha what's happened? So what, what happened? So it, it, it reached a peak of success. Um, whether was there something that sort of stopped its flow? Well, what's your, what was your big takeaway from it? Because of course, businesses go up and down and there's a bit of a journey that you go on. Um, and was there innovation after, after you building? Know, the the <clears throat> thing about it, once you had the formula down, yeah. you didn't want to innovate. You know, it was just, it was just step and repeat. Yeah. Um, but what happened, um, there was a time when the market got oversaturated, mm -hmm. partially by us and, and some hangers on some, some competitors. And when we first opened in a location, people would drive for, you know, an hour to get to a Chuck E. Cheese. You know, because if you're in Omaha, you know, there's a, it's not very dense, but, you know, if you can drive an hour, you can get a lot of people. 
Well, when grandma would come in town, oh, you got to go take Chuck E. Cheese. So the repeats for the first year were phenomenal. But after that, they uh, it, it kind of settled down to uh, once a month, once every other month kind of thing for the family. Mm. And uh, in certain areas, we found that we were overbuilt. And so the, the business had to rationalize in order for everybody to be happy. So, you know, I say Des Moines, we woke up one morning and there were six Chuck E. Cheese-like things. There's a couple of showbiz and that. And, uh, and it was a market that really could support two to three at full profit. Mm-hmm. So you, you, until the, the market rationalized itself, uh, everybody lost money. Mm. Got it. Yeah. And, and what are you doing these days? Because apparently you've been involved in all sorts of ventures. And I know that you're involved in education. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the journey these days. What, what are you up to? Um, what's the cool, what cool stuff you're involved in? I did a, a adaptive practice learning platform that was before its time. Mm. And uh, we, I never really closed it down, but it was kind of on, in, you know, on mothballs, if you would. Um, and so we are, uh, I'm ramping that back up full, full tilt because you know, homeschool and, and remote learning is, is all the rage. And the, the technology is massively powerful. Like, um, the, I can accelerate learning to put, give the kids the equivalent of what they currently learn in high school all four years in six months. That's the promise. You know, and I can show on, on that because when you are, people don't realize how much wasted time there is in a typical school day, mm. you know, and, and so just getting some of that fixed. What are you doing different? What are you, what are you doing differently in your uh, platform that's able to condense learning? Learning is really a, a lot of learning is just done wrong. It's, it's passive. When you read a book, passive. When you watch a video, passive. Mm-hmm. When you hear a lecture, passive. You know, and they try to make it active by taking notes, but your brain really doesn't, isn't engaged until you have to answer a question. So our software, you have to respond to it every three to five seconds. That's where the learning takes place. You have to think about it because, you know, you're, you're passively viewing a whole bunch of stuff every day as you just go through life. Mm. How do you, how does your brain know what you're supposed to remember? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. and until you think about it and you respond to it, that's the clue that says, Oh, remember this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and, and it changes the motivation. So, it's a it's a technology we call adaptive practice, in which uh, you're launching it again, or you're getting it funded, or yeah, exactly, okay. yeah. Cool. Can you tell us what it's called, or is the name still? I'll learn it. It's called sorry. Learn up. Yeah. Okay. Learn up. Uh huh. Learn up. We'll keep that in mind. Learn up. Um, a little bit like a turnip, but learning. <laughs> <laughs> and then I've got another one that's called Weird Woods which is a 
camping gaming experience. You know, you think of a uh, an escape room. Yeah. You know, turn it into an escape trail in the in the forest. Uh, you bring the bring the woods alive and and uh, and do a zip line, but now in VR. Mm. So yeah. now you can. Oh, yeah. Zip line from the top of the Eiffel Tower to Echo awesome. Military, across uh, the uh, Grand Canyon, mm. down, <laughs> you know. Um, and then one of the things we're doing is Creepy Cabin, <laughs> where you have to go and uh, escape the zombies that are com coming. You know, it, every every slasher horror fix has a bunch of teenagers out in the woods in a cabin. Right. Now we're going to give you that ability, and all the windows are infield uh, uh, video screens, and then the zombies are coming after your butt. <laughs> wow! Make it even more realistic. Um, I would love to tune into some of our audience questions. We have a lot of great yeah. questions coming in, and it's also a good reminder if you're tuning in live right now, send in your questions, and we'll get Nolan to answer as much as possible. Yeah. So this first one comes from one of our past guests, Kate Bond. And she asks, you know, given innovation ranges from everything from nibbling around the edges of transformation to true disruption, can you offer some insights that you've uncovered through the gaming world that might even translate to other sectors like financial services or enhancing the customer journey and experience? Yeah, there, there, are, there are two or three different characteristics of innovation. There's an innovation that people don't know that their life is going to be better. So you have to not just show them their, the technology, but you have to show them that their life is better. Hmm. You know, Amazon Echo is one of those things hmm. that, that if you talk to people, half of the people hate them and half of it like it. And I couldn't, I, I, I have so many things that I have under voice control my wife hates it because you know she thinks i've got an affair going with alexa <laughs> <laughs> she's jealous <laughs> well i think the more you use it the more that that uh, echo understands you yeah and so and i think that uh, that she in fact does respond better to lower pitched voices hmm. And so it could be a little bit of efficacy there. Hmm. But, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people right now don't understand how a voice-controlled world can be better. And, hmm. and it's pretty simple to do. But understand that the more radical and disruptive you are, the harder you're going to be able, the harder it will be for you to get funded. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I wanted to do a game company, you know, just video games or what have you, I could get it funded day after tomorrow. But if I want to do something that's actually interesting to me, that's revolutionary and difficult, that's hard. Because say, well, what, what do you know about that? You know, right. I said, well, you know, I kind of know about that. <laughs> right. That yes. sort of thing. And, and I think that... Um, you you always I love the word the story about Ned Ludd who started the Luddites mm -hmm. in the, at the end of the 18th, uh, 19th century and 
he basically was a weaver that was displaced by automation mm-hmm. and started the anti-technology movement. Mm-hmm. There were more people, there were more British soldiers fighting the Luddites than they sent to fight Napoleon. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that historically. Mm-hmm. And so the Luddite movement is live and well today. They don't call themselves that, but but mm-hmm. but they've got all the the mindset and the, and the structure. Hmm. Uh, and politicians are the most pernicious, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because if if a politician says, I'm going to do this to save jobs, he's always on the wrong side of things. Mm-hmm. You know, you basically, your, your objective in life is to destroy jobs. Mm-hmm. And there will always be more things <clears throat> In fact, I wrote a short story a few years ago called 100% Unemployment in a Day. And uh, and all it did is just make lives, you know, everybody was replaced by an android. Mm-hmm. You know, so they didn't have to go to work anymore. But in three weeks, they were back working again because they just wanted a double paycheck. <laughs> right. <clears throat> We have, a, we have another question coming from Jordan on Facebook, and he's asking, how do we turn passion into success? I have great passion, but find many dead ends. The beginning is a struggle. Beginning is always a struggle. Mm-hmm. And uh, passion without research is not, a, is not an answer. Mm-hmm. And, and what, you, what you need to do is start out maybe being a little bit humble and just start out by, can I make an extra $200 a week on a side project? Not quitting my job. I'm still working, but I want to make extra money by making and selling something. Mm. And then somewhere along the line, you say, well, I'm making an extra $200 a week. Maybe I can make $1,000 a week. What would I need to do to do that? And so you start walking up this, this, this slope of increased opportunities. And pretty soon, maybe you're, you're making enough money that you can hire somebody. You, have still, you still haven't quit your job yet, you know, because you can't afford yourself yet but you can hire somebody at minimum wage to actually run your other little business. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what you're doing is you're exploring and you're starting to understand the market and you're starting to understand the challenges. Mm-hmm. And all of these things are good for your eventual success. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, starting out a little bit humble can maybe be your answer. Mm-hmm. I really like what you're saying to Jordan here and, and for Jordan, what I really hear is <clears throat> there's <clears throat> the passion element and it's, you have to have that fuel to keep you going, but you're also mentioning Nolan, the discipline side, like do your discipline around the research, find yep. those incremental steps to start getting some income on the side, but don't fully jump to the next thing. If you ha- don't have that safety net for yourself, like really being smart about yep. those discipline pieces. Yeah. The, pro- the problem is, Nolan, a lot of the books that have been coming out over the last seven to 10 years, it's almost zero to hero mm-hmm. uh, mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, just go for it. You know, just do it. 
um, not really thinking through what you've just said, where, of course, people bypass research. I mean, they read a few articles and say, right, I got it. If I had this problem, Nolan, I'd solve it this way. Right, I'm going to build a business. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so the market research has gone out of the window. But that's great. Can I ask one question before we run out of time? Sure. A little bit about, you know, you're, you're, for us, you're an icon, right? And you, I guess as a founder and as an entrepreneur, you are Nolan, the icon, the entrepreneur, and then you're the dad and the partner and the husband and so on and so forth, all the other roles. I'm sure you've got grandkids. You've got eight children. Um, what an amazing legacy. Have any of your kids been involved in any of your ventures or have they taken after you in any way, shape or form? They all have. <laughs> Wonderful. In fact, if you, I have five sons, three daughters, all of my daughters, well, my daughters are probably more support structure. Like my oldest daughter has run my PR for 20 years and ah, she's wow. excellent. And she really, and she, she's basically the PR agent for the games business. She, cause she understands it so well. Uh, my youngest daughter is uh, a financial planner. And so she does all my investment for us, you know, which isn't really in the game business, but my five sons, they're all in various aspects of the game business. My oldest son has a thing called two bit circus, which is a micro amusement park here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. If you go into the web, it's, it's an amazing, amazing place. It's 50,000 square feet with VR and escape rooms and all wow. kinds of hoo-ha. My uh, second son, is doing a thing called Polycade, which is a arcade reenactment for your home or doctor's office or what have you. And my third son is all about laser engraving and games through, that you can build through 3D modeling. My fourth son is doing game development for uh, a couple of companies. And my, la my youngest son, just cut a deal for a, a half a million dollars for a game that he developed and just sold off. So, you know, he's wow. at 26 years old. He's a, he's a millionaire. So I, I'm happy about that. <laughs> That's incredible. That's very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, uh, two, yeah. Two. And, and I am proud, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag proud. <laughs> proud dad. <laughs> Uh, one last question from our, our group here. Uh, this is from our, we have an internal Mavericks group from our uh, WhatsApp page for STL that we, we generate with our past speakers, but also our audience members and anyone listening can join as well. Um, so Deshang from our group asks, um, you know, you famously turned down the investment in Apple at seed stage. I think you had even shared with me, um, it was something like 50,000 they were offering you for a third of Apple. Right. And his question to you is, how did that change your approach to identifying opportunities after that point? Not much, actually, you know, and, and cause I actually think, and, and I may be, you know, a little Pollyanna here, but um, I think the outcome may have been different because I think that Mike Markla, who took my place, who basically did the investment, was Steve's early mentor. Mm -hmm. And I didn't invest in Steve because I didn't think he was 
good CEO material at that time. And I think he wasn't. And Mike Markle, by being the first president of Apple, became that adult and that mentor that, that allowed Apple to become successful. Mm-hmm. So, so I still think you, you bet on the jockey, not on the horse in, in mm-hmm. terms of, of, of companies. And, and if you feel that the, the team is lacking, I think that you still have to say no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well said. I like that point. That's part of the research you would, you should be doing out yeah. there is the leadership, the board, like all the, all the factors that make the company move the jockey, as you say, let, let me tell you a funny little trick. <laughs> I will not hire or invest in somebody unless I have dinner with them, their wife or husband and my wife. Mm. Nice. And the thing that us guys don't realize is that we are big, clumsy oxes compared to the nuance that our that our wives can figure out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. correct. And, and she has been able to suss out phonies, frauds, and pretenders mm. that I that I was totally smitten by. Right. And and I've just learned that that's an asset that I don't have, mm. and so. I'm going to remediate that. So, Mm. you know, anyway. Oh, and the other thing that's interesting is my wife can figure out things about the, the other guy, the other woman's husband (laughs) through, through the wife, because the Uh wife can, (laughs) the wife, (laughs) she'll see her reactions to the husband, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, it's the funniest damn thing, you Mm. know, it's it's just theater. It's yeah. just theater. One meal, up yeah. or down. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. We're coming to the end of our hour here. I, I mean, we could do this for another hour easily, or more, much more time. We'd love to have you back at some point if you're open to that, Nolan. Um, well, what we want to ask you is just: Do you have any final words for the next generation of leaders, the people that are out there today? that are going through really tough times with COVID and all these unpredictable moments we're having, climate, all kinds of stuff that we never had to think about in the 70s, 80s, 90s as, as much, and now it's in our face. Um, any, any words of uh, wisdom for the new generations listening today? Don't panic. You know, fundamentally, the data that you receive on an everyday basis is amplified maybe five to 10x what the reality is. And, 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 and so if you plan your life around faulty data, you're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have to understand that, that when you're being clickbaited and, mm-hmm. and all that, and you just have to, you have to get a lot of different sources for your data inputs. Second, understand mathematically statistics, the difference between correlation and causality, Mm -hmm. that a lot of times things correlate, but they're not causal. Mm -hmm. Correct, yeah. And, you know, I can remember my first 
course in statistics where the professor said, if you only learn one thing in this class is to not confuse correlation and causality. And I've taken that to heart and it's really saved me on a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Third part, understand when there is a singularity and a singularity somehow will wipe out trend lines. That is, there, there are trends that go into a singularity and then trends that come out and they're going to be different. Some of them massively different. So right now, you may be the most fertile time for innovation you've ever seen, Mm -hmm. just not in the same way that you've ever seen it before because there's been a singularity in COVID. Mm -hmm. And, And so understand the mathematics around that a little bit. I mean, and I'm not talking about upper level, but there's just, there's certain things that, that the world tells you that if you don't pay attention to it, you're making a mistake. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's powerful. Love it. That's powerful. We will, we will cut that bit out and um, we'll use that in a lot of our content because I think that's those three very important lessons of mm-hmm. life we need to keep reminding ourselves of it because we get caught up in the hype mm-hmm. of everything that's going on today. Yeah. <clears throat> Nolan, um, I just want to say uh, thank you again from Straight Talk Live and from each of us. Um, I just want to say, I think you're doing, some, you're doing something right. And how I know that is a lot of what you talked about today really came back down to curiosity, aliveness, play, yeah. optimism, being engaged, learning, and it's so obvious how you're still being sourced and so vital from all of those values that you're living. And so I can just tell that you're doing it right. And I want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> 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 so thank you so much for all that you bring and all that you've led and done and helping the next generations the way you do and your well, continuing I curiosity. To, I, I never want to grow up. <laughs> Good. That's, that's, the Chuck, that's the Chuck E. Cheese motto. <laughs> So thank you again, and um, so honored to have you here. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. Please go ahead. Yeah, did you want to say one last thing? Oh, I was just going to say, my wife often says that she's got seven children and no husband. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And just for those tuning in next week, we're going to go on with one of uh, someone that you know, Nolan, Mark Stallman. Um, oh, yeah, Mark's a good guy. He's a good guy, and he's going to be on our show next week. Uh, we're going to go live with Mark. And we're going to talk about the three spheres and what he's up to around what's happening right now with the East, mostly China, the West, and also digital and how that's all playing out in today's ecosystems and what we need to know uh, globally. So it's going to be a fantastic show. I'll do that. All right. Tune in. I'll send you the link. And for all those listening, thanks again. And may this bring more curiosity and creativity to your day as you go out there in the world and straight talk with the people around you. Yeah. Over and out, everyone. Thank you so much. All the best. Thanks, Nolan. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.